Well, good morning, everyone. Yesterday, I had the great fortune of going to a Korean wedding. This is my first ever Korean wedding. It was just fantastic. It was over in Balboa Park. And uh, I was sitting there, and for a moment, I thought they had stolen my sermon notes. Uh, but although they never mentioned God, it was a secular wedding, it, it underscored to me that what they wanted in their wedding was what God is calling us for in worship. And they sang a song, uh, and don't worry, I'm not going to sing it, I'm just, I just wrote down a couple of the lyrics the title uh, is This Kind of Love, and it's by a rock group called Sister Hazel. Yeah, if you're like me, I never heard of a rock group called Sister Hazel. But it said, this kind of love is what I dreamed about. Yes, it, it fills me up, and this kind of hope leaves no room for doubts. Can't get enough of this kind of love. And it was so interesting that although this was a secular wedding, the three words that were repeated throughout the wedding ceremony were faith, hope, and love. I'm not, I'm not kidding. I was so moved by the ceremony. If you thought you never, ever wanted to get married, all you had to do is if you went to that wedding ceremony, you'd be walking around Balboa Park asking people to marry you. <laughs> And um, it made me think of the service today, uh, the title of which is uh, Worship is an Open Door to Experiencing Spiritual Healing and Transformation. That worship is an open door to experiencing spiritual healing and transformation. Our text uh, this morning is from uh, Philippians 3 and John 5 which you will find in your uh, program uh, on page 6. So if you'll follow along as I read, I'm going to start with John 5. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else comes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. And then the uh, correlative passage is from Philippians 3. Paul writes, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, 
I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. So if you look on your outline on page 7, the first point is that a worship is a door to spiritual healing. And it just thrills me when I listen to John's homily at the beginning that people on cruise ships and in mud huts and in far different languages. And part of the ceremony yesterday was in Korean. I just, I wanted to get up and ask somebody to pray in Korean, but that wasn't the right place to do it. Um, I just got so thrilled by what John said as an introduction for us this morning. I want to take a look at the story about the man who received not only a physical healing, but a spiritual healing. I'm going to talk about the spiritual healing aspect of it. Uh, there, are, there are several things going on here in this particular story. Uh, first, the disabled are often dependent on other people. And other people are often too to burden themselves or too busy to help. The result is that the disabled person cannot get the help he needs and is unable to help himself. When it's said in our text that Jesus apparently had inquired about the man and learned that he had been in this invalid condition for 38 years. Jesus initiated the conversation with him. And you would think when Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? What a silly question. I mean, doesn't that strike you as an odd question to a person who's been an obvious disability, a severe disability for 38 years? And the man's response seems completely out of place. He doesn't say, well, obviously. He says, well, no one's here to help me. And, and when, I, when I try to race to the water, somebody else beats me there. And, and, I, and I can't get what I need because someone else is faster. And, but see, with, with our Lord... Um, we are never a burden to a loving father. He is never too busy or preoccupied or overtaxed. He alone is our help. The man's answer to Jesus was not phony. He was not dodging the issue he was answering based on where he was spiritually. That is, he had tied his ability to get well to the intervention of another person. He did not tie his ability to get well to the presence of the living and loving God. Perhaps he felt too insignificant too unworthy to turn to God himself for help. Why, he may have thought, would God help a worm like me? Jesus' question to the man was not to determine whether the man wanted to get well. 
obviously the man wanted to get well. The purpose of the question was to cause the man to consider to whom would he look for help? Do you want to get well? In effect, is saying, stop looking at all these other sources. Stop looking at another human being to carry you to the pool of Bethesda. The man had been looking to the wrong source all these years. And now the perfect man, the living God, stands before him and asks, in effect, are you willing to look to me, the only one who can help you, for the help you need? That was Jesus' question. This man was in the presence of God with a deep spiritual need. No one counted him worthy enough to carry him into the pool. No one was humble enough to say, although I can get to the pool before you do, I want you to take my place in the pool and you go. But there standing before him was the man who said, in effect, you don't know it now, but I am going to take your place And there's a greater disability you suffer. Yes, your body needs to be straightened and you need to be able to stand and walk. But there is a deeper problem you have. It is a problem of great sin which has separated you from God and caused you to look for your help to every place except the one who can help you. And I am going to be the one who steps into the place for you so that the true disability that plagues you, namely sin, will be put on me, and you will be clothed in my wholeness. Worship brings us into the presence of God. And God asks each one of us when we worship, are you willing to look to me, the only one who can help you, for the help you need. And the crippled man had to do three things. He had to regard Jesus, look upon him. He had to believe Jesus, and he had to obey Jesus. We are all spiritually crippled. Worship provokes us to do the same three things that Jesus provoked the crippled man to do. We must regard Jesus. We must believe him. And we must obey him. I'd like to give you a a, a current example of, of what I mean by this. Some of you may know that Dana and I have a new dog. Well, he's 15 months old now, so I get he's not new, new. His name is Boone, like Daniel Boone. He's a black lab. And I try to take him to the dog park at 30th and Grape for five days a week. And not too long ago, uh, and he just loves it. I, I have to hold him on his leash and make him sit. And then when I release it, it's like a bullet shot from a gun. He is just flies out 
And if there's a parcel of dogs, he flies right in the middle like a bowling ball. He's a goofy dog, but very lovable. Uh, so I'm out, and you're keeping an eye on your dog, and a woman came with two beautiful, I don't know, I guess they were uh, Afghan. They, they were the kind of uh, the hounds that the king of Prussia used to keep or something. Tall, very tall, very lean, very long-limbed. If the, it was almost the size of a Doberman Pinscher, I'm not a uh, Great Dane, but smaller in build. And uh, one of them, when they ran, the dog ran, it, it looked like flowing water. The dog was so, these long strides. And I noticed that one was always ahead of the other. And then I noticed the one that was in the second position was running on three legs, not four. The head, the dog had a fourth leg, but the fourth leg never hit the ground. And, and so I was standing next to the owner, and I said, well, what happened uh, to your dog? And she said, well, he had a, a serious injury when he was in a pup, when he was a pup. And he had to wear a cast for eight months because it was such a complex complex fracture said the 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 I said well what's wrong now did it heal properly she said oh it healed perfectly it's been four months since the cast has been off but he is so accustomed to having it on that he no longer puts the fourth foot on the ground And I thought to myself, from a spiritual standpoint, we are often like that. God comes and he says, I'm going to make you a new person. Not tomorrow or five years from now, I'm going to come to you and make you a new person. At the moment we receive Christ, we are at that moment a new creation. And that new creation has two aspects. There is an immediate transformation. I remember when I got saved at 2.30 in the morning on a, I guess now it's a Sunday. Um, Five minutes before I was saved, I had no interest in the Bible attending church. In fact, my my prayer to God two weeks earlier was, I don't even know if you exist, but I do know that I don't like to go to church. I don't like to read the Bible. I don't like to sing hymns, and I don't like to hang with Christians. That's That's a quote. But I do love to play squash, which is a game like racquetball. If you are who you say you are, Make me love these things more than I love to play squash. And at 2.30, one Sunday morning, two weeks after that prayer, about which I had forgotten, God saved me. And when I got up off the ground from my crying, realizing for the first time that my sins had separated me from God so dramatically that there was nothing I could do to restore the breach I had created, and that Jesus died because he had to die for me. I was the reason Jesus had to die. And it just made me sob like a child. But when I stopped sobbing, 
I had this incredible need to read the Bible. I wanted to find some Christians I could talk to. I had to go to church. I didn't know any churches in San Diego. I wanted to sing some hymns. That was an immediate transformation. Now, the process of being transformed is a lifelong venture that Jesus has undertaken. But the transformation at the point of salvation is immediate. We are not, just like a woman is not almost pregnant. We are not almost changed. When we become saved, we are changed. And I wonder how many times when we think about the fact that we have been spiritually healed, we don't put the other foot on the ground because we remember the way we used to be. I, uh, when I talk to people who are Christians who say, I am a recovering alcoholic, I understand the philosophy of that. But what you are is a child in Christ And in the old you, you were an alcoholic, but you are a new creation. And we can take hold of this now. We live in this new creation that God has given us. And so um, spiritual healing requires that you and I regard Jesus, believe him, and obey him. We don't need to look back at the past the afflictions that afflicted us, and define ourselves that way. We don't have to define ourselves as alcoholics, drug addicts, prostitutes, greedy corporate materialists. God has made us new. And I just want to know if this morning you perhaps need a spiritual healing. Um, Have you tied your ability to get this spiritual healing to some other person or thing? Are you trying to overcome this problem by yourself? Or do you recognize that you overcome it by coming into the presence of the living and loving God? Do you feel too insignificant or unworthy to turn to God for help? Are you thinking, why would God care about me? Why would he help me? Jesus' question to us is not to determine whether we want to get well. Like with the man, the question to us is to provoke the question, are you willing to look to me for the help you need? And Jesus says, in effect, to each of us, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. Well, the second point is that worship is an open door to experiencing both forgiveness and transformation. When I was at the wedding yesterday, that wonderful wedding, they started out with what they said was a Korean tradition. The mother stepped forward and each took a a jar of water and they washed uh, the hands of the bride and groom in the water and and then washed it to signify that they were entering this marriage with clean hearts and with clean motives. So 
here we are coming into the presence of God and our hearts may not be clean. Our motives may not be clean. We're here maybe because we feel guilty if we're not here. Or we're here because somebody dragged us here. Or we're here but by, you know, I don't really know why I'm here. I want to turn to this uh, statement from Paul because to me it's one of the most powerful statements in the Bible. Paul writes, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I love these two verses in Philippians. And you know, it's possible to read verses like this and miss the spiritual importance and power of what the author is saying. Let me put it into perspective. Paul is really the head of the Ku Klux Klan. He has, with zeal, participated in riots against members of the civil rights movement. He has taken delight in water hosing blacks or helping police strike them with batons. And even in the murder of Martin Luther King. And then God saves Paul and says he wants Paul to help lead the civil rights movement. Indeed, God is going to put Paul in the forefront of that movement. So here's Paul, the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And he must deal with the hatred of the Klan members and their sympathizers, for to them he is a traitor. But my goodness, he has to walk into a whole room full of black people and must deal with their suspicion and distrust and maybe even their hatred because they know what he has done to other civil rights movement, uh, uh, other civil rights leaders, and they know how hateful and hurtful he has been to the civil rights movement. Paul himself remembers the civil rights demonstrators he personally beat and threw in jail. He must remember that he eagerly consented to and was present at the death of Martin Luther King. And God has called him to lead in that movement. Think of the way people look at him. How they whisper when he enters a room. How they step back from him when he reaches out a hand. Imagine his own self-condemnation. And God has called him to lead. It is Paul who looks in the mirror and says to himself, forgetting those things which are behind. I uh, strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When Paul writes these words, it is not casual poetry or even potent prose. He is writing out of his brokenness before God. Every day, 
Paul must reconsider the cross of Jesus Christ. Dick Kaufman once shared with uh, my wife and I a rich insight into Paul's own spiritual growth. When he started out as a new believer and as an apostle, he said in 1 Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles. Toward the middle of his ministry, he said, I am the least of God's saints. And then at the end of his ministry, he wrote and he said, I am the chief of sinners. As Paul matured in the faith, he realized he was a worse sinner than he had ever imagined. But that also he was more loved than he had ever thought possible. God calls us to maturity, not perfection. God calls us to maturity, not perfection. One man is perfect, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has purposed to close us in his perfection, his righteousness, and to conform us to his image by his power, not by our power, by his power. Jesus transforms us. Now, let me repeat that. He doesn't help us transform. Jesus transforms us. You and I are inconsistent in the process And sometimes when I realize what God needs to do to transform me, frankly, I say, could you not do it today? Could you give me a little more time? But God purposes to transform us on his own schedule and by his own methods. I want to share with you two short stories about transformation. One is, transformation in another person's life, and that's my wife's life. Dana was, uh, used to be a chain smoker. She smoked a pack of cigarettes a day. I could not get her to stop smoking. And as a Christian, she wanted to stop smoking, but she couldn't stop smoking. And I tried all the worldly methods I knew to get her to stop smoking. I bribed her. If you stop smoking, I'll buy this. I threatened her. I cajoled her. I pleaded and said, what will I do if you die? I'll be me the kid. Want me to do that again? (laughs) (laughs) Nothing I did worked. And one day we were in our kitchen and she had reached for a cigarette and was about to light it. And now I'm on method number five, which is the lecture method. If you are a spouse, you know that, that we often perfect the lecture method. And I, had, I was actually raising this finger up because you, you lecture more effectively with the lecture finger raised to the sky, right? So I got the lecture lips about to move, the lecture finger in position. And God says to me, be quiet. Just as I, I wanted to look, say nothing. Pray for her. And I was so gripped by fear because I knew God had spoken to me that I didn't say anything. And I went off, I went to a bedroom and I prayed. 
And every single day I prayed. And this is my prayer. I prayed the same prayer every day for eight months. Lord, cause Dana to hate smoking. Cause her to rather eat a worm than smoke a cigarette. Eight months later, Dana came to me and said, you haven't noticed. I said, as a husband, you know this is a warning sign. (laughs) You know you have blown it in a huge way, and I'm thinking, it's not a birthday, it's not an anniversary. I'm going through all the things that, that I was supposed to remember that I didn't remember. And so she saw me and she said, I haven't smoked for two weeks. And I realized as I looked back in my mind, I hadn't seen her smoke for two weeks. But during those two week period, that two week period when Dana had stopped, I was still pounding the doors of heaven for God to work, cause her to stop and make her rather eat a worm than smoke a cigarette. Well, sometime later, when I wasn't at home, and this is maybe I think Dana said it was like eight months later, she was tempted to smoke a cigarette. And she found one somehow. I think maybe by this time one of our sons was smoking. She picked it up, she lit it, and she took one puff. And she, she thought to herself, this is terrible. This is like eating worms. I'd rather eat a worm than eat a... Now, I hadn't said anything to her. Sometime later, we had a conversation, and she confessed this time of trying the cigarette, and that she had said to herself, I'd rather eat a worm than... And that's when I told her about my prayer. And one of the things I realized is that I had been an obstacle not an aid to Dana's desire not to smoke. And even when God had done the work, I had not recognized that God had done the work. My prayers were an aid, not because of me, because God answers prayer. (laughs) I had not recognized God's transforming work in Dana's life. My son, Quentin, uh, who's now 30, was at home about two years ago. And I made a statement to him. I said, well, you ought to read this, but I know you hate to read. And he looked at me and he said, Dad, that was years ago. I read all the time now. I love to read. And he was really hurt by my statement. And I realized when I looked back over my mind's eye, he always had a book in his hand in the last three or four years. But see, I had him trapped in old perceptions and had not dealt with the new Quentin. I just want to ask you, have you trapped someone in the image of where they once were? Are you an obstacle to God doing a transforming work in someone else's life? Let me share one more story with you about experiencing transformation. Uh, Like many of you, I have one of those double 
sinks in the kitchen and it's got a hose with a sprayer on the end and that hose had developed a leak and uh, we kept wanting to get around to fix it and the leak was underneath Uh, and we found out that if you pulled the hose to its if you extended it out of its holding device and laid it across the sink it wouldn't link so for like months we would take it and we'd lift it out and we'd lay it across the sink We'd clean dishes, spray it, lift it out, and lay it across the sink. And then I just got so fed up. I said, I'm going to call a plumber. I know, come and fix this. Change it out. And so we worked it out. We chained it out. The plumber came and put in a whole new hole. Oh, it just works beautifully. But for months, Dana would pull it out and lay it across the sink. And And I'd put it back. And I'd come back. She'd pull it out and put it on the sink. And I said, Dana, sweetheart. The sink is fixed. It doesn't leak. You don't have to do it anymore. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, I forgot. But let me tell you, for yet another month, she would pull it out and lay it across the sink. <laughs> Roberto Shim preached such a wonderful sermon here last Sunday, and in it he made this statement. Jesus has delivered us from all forms of bondage, fear, Pride, selfishness, bitterness. Jesus has also freed us from the need to feel guilty. He has freed us from all those things which try to close our eyes to the glorious fact of his forgiveness. I say this because you may not realize the place of worship in this. When we want to experience the forgiveness of and transformation, we must recognize that Jesus has transformed us already and that he is in the process of continuing this transformation until the day that we awake in his likeness. So I want to talk to the person who is beset by guilt for something he or she has done in the past. It weighs you down with a deep grief. You look at the burned bridges, the fractured relationships, the hurtful things you've said. The people who are gone, you can no longer apologize to. The people for whom you need to ask forgiveness, but they're no longer available. One of the great things about the worship experience is that we realize anew that we are completely forgiven in Christ Jesus. And the Bible says to us, we are therefore now under no condemnation. This is not God's way of of, uh, having a Pollyannish view of who we are. He's not looking at our past in rose-colored glasses. He's looking at our past through the cross. Because all the sins that we've committed, all the mistakes that we've made, everything that we regret was nailed to the cross with Jesus and Jesus bore those things for us so that we do not need to bear them ourselves. I want to close with um, this statement. Paul exhorts believers with these words, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead and descended 
from David. This is my gospel. Um, the gospel we have and which we experience in worship takes the focus off ourselves and puts the focus entirely on Jesus Christ. It is not what we have done. It is what Christ has done and continues to do for us. And that is why you can, a, a Paul can step forward with the things he has done. He consented to the death of Stephen. He threw Christians in the jail. He saw them beaten. He disregarded the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is able to say, forgetting what is behind, because I am new in Christ, I press forward. And what worship does for us is remind us corporately. It's not just what happened to Bill McCurran or Son or Sunil or Candace. It's what happens to us corporately, to each one of us. We can look at one another and we're reminded, my goodness, God is so great. He has not just done this for me. He's done this for everybody who comes to Jesus Christ to receive his salvation. Now, in our post-Christian culture, the church is often seen as a hindrance to true worship. There is some truth to that. I can understand why some people think that they can worship God in private uh, and in their own way. Uh, as alluring as that feeling may be, the Bible teaches us a far greater truth. We can and must worship God privately, yes, but worship is intended to be corporate, communal. When the prophet Isaiah prophesies about the new heaven and new earth God will form, he uses a picture of corporate worship. Let me read it to you. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. They will worship together together. And we are commanded to engage in communal worship. In Hebrews 10, 25, it says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. This belief that worship is best done privately is not a new thought. It's not modern. It's an old thought. Have you noticed that sometimes after you leave church, you cannot recall exactly what the speaker said in the sermon? If that's true of any of you today, shame on you. No. <laughs> but quite true, you can't remember exactly what, what was said. Um, but you find yourself asking a spouse or friend to forgive you. Uh, or you apologize to a spouse or a friend for something that you said the other day, or you feel prompted to call a family member or friend to encourage them, and all that happens because you and I have been in the presence of God. Or you leave church and perhaps you do not think you got much out of the sermon that day, um, but you find yourself humming one of the songs, or repeating in your mind the lyrics to one of the songs that was sung. And you can't remember more than a few lines, but it's still in your mind, and nonetheless, you feel better. Or you feel 
maybe you just need to repent quietly before God for something you said or did. Why? Because you have been corporately in the presence of God. In 1988, three large gray whales were trapped off the coast of Point Barrow, Alaska. They were trapped beneath uh, frozen ice. They had not gone out to sea early enough. They had stayed inshore toward some of the feeding grounds. Now they were trapped. And when uh, the, the, the natives realized that they were trapped, they tried different methods of rescuing the gray whales. And they... They even named all three of them. But they finally came upon a plan. They would take huge concrete blocks and from a helicopter drop them on the ice and create an air hole for each of the whales. And they did this for five miles in a straight line out to the open sea. It took eight weeks and while they were dropping the, uh, the, the huge concrete blocks, polar bears were around because they recognized an opportunity to feed. If, if they could capture one of these whales, this is food for a season for a polar bear. And so you've got the, the, the need for air, you've got the polar bears and the rescuers who are trying to hurry up and get them before the whales drown and before they're attacked by the polar bears. Eight weeks it took them. And the, the, the uh, whales would come up to uh, one of the holes in the ice, blow out, breathe, breathe again, and go back down. And they, and they did that for five miles. And, and when they got to open sea, two whales had escaped. They never, they never learned what happened to the third whale. When we worship God, when we come together as a community of faith to worship God, God creates these air holes for his people who are battered and bruised in a world frozen over by selfishness, hatred, and greed. Worship is our air hole. We rise to the surface for air at church to be loved and encouraged, as well as to love and to encourage others until the day the Lord returns and shatters forever the ice that overlays our lives. And we have nothing but the pure air of Christ himself to breathe. These air holes explain why worship can help us pick up our mats and walk and forgetting those things that are behind press forward to the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you for first uh, Stephen Cooper, who has been and remains such a blessing to this church, and we ask that you would give he and his family the most wonderful vacation as they are away. We thank you for Dick Kaufman, who with loving kindness has pastored us for these years. We thank you for this worship team, which creates an atmosphere that opens our heart to experience your presence corporately. 
We thank you that you have invited us to worship you corporately, that we may experience true spiritual healing, that we may know your rich forgiveness, that we may rejoice in the transforming work you are doing in our lives. Amen.